So this morning we are in lesson 15. On your notes, you can see on the top, Prophet, Priest, and King, the roles of Christ in the Bible and our roles today by Richard Belcher Jr. So we're going to be following a lot of the material from his book here, uh, adapted for Sunday school. We're in chapter 8, the, almost the last chapter of the book, right, right prior to the conclusion, Implications for the Church. And we're also pulling some material from Ben Glad's book, From Adam and Israel to the Church. So this has been a super fascinating study. We, we've looked at, in the beginning, Genesis 1, what's going on there when we think about prophet, priest, and king. We then looked at the Old Testament when it divided out these roles into specific offices, and then how those offices found their fulfillment in the anointed one, the Christ, right? In his roles, and his role as mediator, specifically as prophet, priest, and king. So what I'd like to do is just use the catechism. This has just been super beneficial. I've just loved every time of this. So we'll do question and answer, and we're going to do all seven. Uh, I'll read the question, and then corporately we'll, we'll do a responsive reading with the answers. So, question 22. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Answer. Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his state of humiliation and exaltation. Question 23. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer. Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. Question 24. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Answer. Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Question 25. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and in conquering all his and our enemies. Excellent. Now let's get practical. Question 65. Why do you need Christ as a prophet? Answer. I need Christ as a prophet because I do not know the will of God for salvation. Question 66. Why do you need Christ as a priest? Answer. I need Christ as a priest because my sin separates me from God. Question 67. Why do you need Christ as a king? Answer. I need Christ as a king because I am weak and helpless. So that's excellent and super encouraging as we just look at that as a really excellent snapshot. So on your notes, we'll get started with prophet, priest, and king. Implications for the church. So this morning we're going to look at the church and those in union with Christ, the church and, and the church's mission and what this means for individual believers when we think about prophet, priest, and king. And specifically this week we're going to focus on the prophetic aspect or the prophetic role of believers in the New Testament. And then next week we're going to finish with the priestly and kingly roles. So we get started implications for the church. Jesus's fulfillment of the roles of prophet, 
priest and king has implications for the identity and the mission of the church and for the role of individual believers. Jesus is the perfect image of God and has succeeded where Adam and Israel, Israel corporate Adam, failed. And this is why the gospel writer spent so much time and energy connecting Jesus's career to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We saw so much of that, right? Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. He must undo their wrongs. But Jesus's obedient life extends to his followers. God applies Christ's obedience to the covenant made with Adam and to the church. The church is, through union with Christ, little last Adams and true Israelites. We reap the benefits of his work. We are what he is, and that is by union with Christ, right? When we think of um, those phrases in Christ or with Christ, right? That's that idea of union with Christ. And since Jesus is the perfected image of God, the church is the corporate perfected image of God. The image of God is reflected in the roles of prophet, priest, and king. So we can see that connection. As we are in union with Jesus, so we share in the implication of his roles for us as prophet, priest, and king. And just as a helpful little summary here, glad, you know, Ben Glad provided what I just previously stated, and, and then he, he helps provide a little summary. So remember, a prophet is one who hears God's voice, speaks on behalf of God to his people, and embodies his truth. So that's the prophetic aspect. And then priest, priest was to mediate God's holy presence. And then king is to extend God's rule and reign and authority. And this is, this is exciting stuff. The exalted Christ, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, has empowered his church to fulfill its mission through the Holy Spirit. And the church lives out what it already is in Christ, the image of God. And Belcher hopefully says, the roles of prophet, priest, and king demonstrate how the church can carry out its mission as the body of Christ. And this, again, is fulfilled through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that um, next on your notes when we talk about and think of the day of Pentecost. Because the coming of the Holy Spirit, right, when we think of Pentecost, it is the beginning of new creation. It is the bringing in of the age to come into the present age. It is bringing future realities now into the age to come, where we have this mixed reality, where we're still a part of old creation, right, corrupted creation, but then also we are now a part of new creation. You think of 2 Corinthians 5, right? You are new creatures in Christ. That's because new creation was brought in with Christ and his resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit. If you will, turn with me real quick to the book of John, just to kind of help set the right, right tempo. So Jesus talked about this in, 
somewhat veiled language, right, in comparison to the New Testament authors who interpret and explain the work of Christ and, 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 and what Christ taught. Turn with me to John chapter 15, and we're going to read uh, verse 26, and then chapter 16, verse 7. And it's just amazing uh, how much Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit in John, uh, John 14, John 15, and John 16. So if we can have someone who would be willing to read John 15, verse 26. All right. Yeah. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, you will bear witness about me. All right, very good. So notice that in the beginning, right? But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you, right? So um, uh, from the Father. So the Father and the Son will send the Spirit, and there's a time when the Spirit comes. Now look with me in chapter uh, 16, and let's read uh, verse 7. Can I have someone read verse 7? Okay. Uh, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Excellent. So we see that connection. So the going away of Christ, is connected with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and when we, and we're going to get into this in just a little bit on the day of Pentecost and how, this, how these realities and what Jesus says here works out with the Old Testament and this idea of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the ascension of Christ and to his seat, being seated in power at the Father's right hand. So this marks the coming of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ to His people, indicating Christ's saving rule to the nations. And this becomes a new era, a new epoch in redemptive history, the end part of the last days, the age of the Spirit. So on your notes, the prophetic ministry of the church. And I thought um, uh, Ben Glad here uh, provided uh, just a helpful uh, a helpful catch here. The success of Jesus as the perfect prophet created a new humanity, the eschatological Israel, the, the, the future Israel, to embody God's law and communicate it to others. So let's think about that, the prophetic ministry of the church and what's taking place here. So on your notes, number one, Joel's prophecy and the day of Pentecost. And that's, what, and that's what we want to do. We want to show and demonstrate how the New Testament identifies the beginning or the inauguration of what the Old Testament predicted, right? How it shows this fulfillment, but it's, there's this aspect where it's, it's already present, but then there's also this tension where it's not yet complete, right? We talk about that as this already, not yet tension of the New Testament. So, and like we, like we said... On the day of Pentecost, in Acts 1 and Acts 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon God's people in fulfillment of Joel 2. So with that, open your Bibles to the book of Joel, right, all the way. So go back, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. And so Joel is a short book in the Minor Prophets. If we remember Joel, it was prior to um, Judah going into exile. 
And there was a massive locust plague in Judah during this time. And, um, uh, and, and, and that's what Joel chapter 1 talks about. And so in, like, just an overview, Joel 1 talks about, hey, there was a, this locust and the people need to repent. Right, because of their idolatry and their sin, and they need to they need to they need to rend not their garments, but they need to rend their hearts. They need to repent and turn back to the Lord. And then Joel two says, Remember what you guys experienced with these with the locusts? Well, there's a future judgment coming. But these locusts will be nothing like what you've experienced. And this is the great and awful day of the Lord. Now, from from the prophet's perspective. Right, he's seeing all these things, and it looks all like one. Right, so he sees judgment coming on Israel and on God's people, but then he sees the salvation and deliverance of God's people, and then also that. And that, so we see that in Joel two, in the end of Joel two, beginning of Joel three, and then in Joel three, we see that God is then going to judge the nations for what they did to God's people, and that the, um, and that His people will be restored. And so the prophet's seeing all these things together, right? The great and awesome day of the Lord. And, and he pictures chapters 2 and 3 almost with these Eden-like restoration, right? He, he actually uses that. I don't remember if it's in verse... I don't remember. Was it verse... Uh, 3? Yeah, verse 3. Thank you. Um, but he, So he's picking up on these things, right? And then he talks about this, this restoration... After following this judgment, right? And we, we see the restoration, if you find in verse 18, right? All the way down, talking about this restoration and the Lord having mercy and the Lord's deliverance and this saving reign of God that returns to his people, not in judgment, and that the invading army is removed and this abundance is returned and there's restoration to what has been restored. And this salvation that's promised, right, as we get down to the end, um, uh, uh, in verses 26 and 27, right, where, where God is um, going to say, like at the end of verse 27, and my people shall never again be put to shame. These sweet promises, right, of what God's going to do. But now look in verse 28. And I'd like us to read... Uh, Verses uh, 28 to 32. Uh, can I have a volunteer to read uh, uh, verses 28 to 32? And then someone else read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. I'll read 28. All right, 28 to 32. All right, perfect. <clears throat> and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned into blackness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And, I shall, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Excellent. And then someone who's willing to read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. 
on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. All right, excellent. So we're going to come back to this text, but one of the things that I, I want um, to bring out right now in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, look at in verse 28, and it shall, in the beginning, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So talking about the day of the Lord, judgment, and then after that, that there's going to be this pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. And that's going to be really significant when we come back. So, and like, like we talked about, the prophetic picture, right, in the Old Testament is different than the people of God in the New Testament. Like we said, the Old Testament prophets are seeing this, but it's almost veiled to some degree. It's shadowy, right, where they're seeing this big event and all these things taking place. And it looks like it's all in one, right? And then in the New Testament, with the coming of Christ and his apostles who now interpret it, we see more clearly that all these events that look like they were bunched up together actually have some time between them, right? If you guys remember in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus reads in the synagogue and he comes up and he takes the scroll and he reads from Isaiah 61 and he says, uh, um, and, he, and he talks about, how um, he is anointed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and proclaims that this scripture has been fulfilled in their hearing. But the next phrase in Isaiah 61 too is that the day of vengeance of our God. And instead of it being one big event that happens, right? we see the first coming of Christ with this emphasis on salvation. But then Christ is going to come back in power and in vengeance and in justice. And that will fulfill that second aspect, that day of vengeance of our God, the coming day of the Lord. And so in Christ's first coming, he inaugurated his kingdom that will culminate or find its ultimate fulfillment in his second coming. Now, the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy is recorded in Acts 2. So if you want to keep a finger in Joel 2, um, that's great. But turn with me to, to Acts chapter 2. And now I want, to see, I want us to see this. And, and I, I think this is important that we note this. The sending of the Holy Spirit is the culmination of Christ's work and inaugurates the Messianic age characterized by the preaching of the gospel in fulfillment of the mission that Christ gave his disciples. Right? We think of Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go out into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And I just want to read that one more time. The sending of the Holy Spirit is the culmination of Christ's work and inaugurates, it begins the Messianic age, right? The Messianic age was the new heavens and the new earth, right? And that starts now. 
And, and how is it characterized? It's characterized in the church through the preaching of the gospel and the building up of the church, fulfilling the mission that Christ gave to his church. All right, so Acts chapter 2, and can I have a volunteer read verses 17 through 21? All right, Rich, yeah. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, excellent. So the context here, Acts chapter 1. You have the disciples are in the upper room, and, um, and Jesus says uh, that the Holy Spirit will come upon them, and they will be his witnesses. And then we see the Holy Spirit come upon them, and they start preaching in different languages to the people. And they all say, well, what, what is this? What's going on? And this is the apostolic interpretation of what took place, because now... There is something new that has occurred in redemptive history that had not happened like this in the past, and that is the coming of the Spirit of Christ. And look, look again, right? So just, just like, we, like we identified, right, in verse 17, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, right? You look down in verse 18, I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. And then look at verse 21, and it shall come to pass that... Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we see the coming of the Spirit, the pouring out. Um, we see this increase of prophetic activity, and it's all happening in this, in this um, major event of salvation, right? If we, if we kind of think of like the age of the church, right? It's messianic age. That people are being saved as they're turning to the Lord and calling upon His name. But, but turn back and look at verse 17 again. Notice the beginning. And in the last days it shall be. Right? And, and, and he's quoting from Joel 2, verse 28. But Joel 2 describes the day of the Lord, and in verse 28 says, it shall come to pass afterward. And so here we have the apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament and what's taking place here. That this is the fulfillment and we right now are in the last days. With the coming of Christ, He has brought in the last days. Right? We think of in Genesis 49 when it talked about um, the ruler coming from Judah. It was predicted in the latter days. Or in Numbers 24 with the star from Jacob. This would take place in the latter days. And now Peter is saying, all these things that were this future element, it's all taking place now. And so we see these aspects of Joel's prophecy that have been started or begun or inaugurated that relate to the church's mission, including salvation, those who call upon the name of the Lord. And then we see this 
this aspect even of that second aspect of the Lord's return on that great day of judgment with the wonders and signs that will take place. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was essential for the church's mission to make disciples of all nations and to teach them to observe all that Christ had commanded the apostles. And remember what we read in John 15 and John 16. But when the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Right? Or John 16, 17 again. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Do we see the importance of the coming of the Holy Spirit? Because Christ must be exalted. And redemptive history must move forward to that predicted end state. The new heavens and the new earth. And so look with me in Acts 2. Just go a little bit farther, right? Because Peter sums up this very well, where, where he ties all of this in very helpfully in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, we talk about not just resurrection, but ascension, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let me read that again. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Christ resurrected and exalted, and He's the one who pours out the Spirit of Christ, who now comes to enable and strengthen the church to fulfill its mission in light of its identity. Right? This inaugurated this messianic age, the new heavens and new earth. It's the new creation in this beginning form. So what's the result of this? Right? When we tie in Joel 2, pouring out of the Holy Spirit, inauguration of the age of the Spirit. So the expectation, and, and so we'll, we'll, we'll transition now a little bit more, right? So that was like, you know, some precursor, helpful background, get our minds kind of thinking, right? How's the Bible, you know, putting all of this together? But what we just saw was a major redemptive event, right? And we're, we're going to talk about this. In the same way that we saw major events with the coming of Christ and his work, right? His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And all those things need to be interpreted. Now we have the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is one more event that must be understood and interpreted by the apostles. And this expectation, right, that as you have redemptive events, right? You think of like the Exodus in the Old Testament, right? Well, you have the Exodus and then you have God raise up people like Moses to explain it to the people. How do you live in light of this? How do we understand and interpret this event? Right? And, and, and Gerhardus Boss has, has, has explained this well. He, he, uh, he and I don't know if, it, I don't think it started with him, but um, in his biblical theology, 
talking about redemption and revelation, right? Keeping those R's together, super important, right? When we think about um, scripture and canon, super helpful. So you have these redemptive events, God's saving reign where he intervenes and delivers, and then God reveals and explains these events to his people because redemptive events do not explain themselves. They require God's interpretation for us to understand them. And so when God establishes the new covenant in the blood of Christ, we would expect written texts to testify to the terms of the new arrangement that God was establishing with his people, just like we saw with the old covenant. And Jesus promises his disciples that the Holy Spirit would be given to them to teach them all things, to bring remembrance all that he had said to them and guide them into all the truth. And that's in John 14, verse 26, and John 16, 13. Reference for, for later. If you will, just uh, turn with me in your Bible. We will take a look at this text. Ephesians 2, 20. Right? Because the apostles are agents of God's revelation, and they play a key role in laying the foundation of the church. And I almost feel like every time this com- comes up in a Sunday school, I'm going to read it because... This text is so critical, right? Especially with the charismatic movement and, uh, and, and, and other groups that, that talk about uh, you know, revelation that it still takes place today. To me, this is such a critical text. So Ephesians 2.20, right? That we, the church, are being, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There's one foundation, and it is the apostles and prophets, right? They are the ones who have built the foundation for the church upon which Jesus is the chief cornerstone through the, through the Spirit, building up that building, right? And, 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 and we see that it's the apostles and, um, and those associated with them um, who are the ones who are performing signs and wonders where God is verifying and validating the truth that they're speaking. And, and even in fulfillment of Joel 2, we see major figures and minor figures um, who are prophets and the prophetic activity taking place, right? We think of Peter or Stephen or Paul or even some of the minor figures like Ananias or Cornelius, right? Uh, seeing visions and dreaming dreams. And Agabus is identified in Acts 21 as a prophet who spoke according to the Holy Spirit. Or we think about 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul talked about those gifted with the gift of prophecy. So we see that there's this increased prophetic activity fulfilled, fulfilling the prophecy of Joel. But once the apostles laid the foundation for the church, there was no need of further prophetic revelation the focus shifted from prophetic revelation to proclaiming and explaining the word of God that had been handed over from the apostles. Or like Jude 3 says, the once for all delivered to the saints, faith. Right? It's a particular faith that cannot be adjusted or dorked with. Right? It is God's doctrine handed down through the apostles. 
And anything that was not in line, according to Galatians 1, with apostolic teaching was a curse. And Revelation 22 says that whoever's going to add Revelation after the apostles was under a curse, similar to that Old Testament curse. And this shift did not mean that prophetic activity, the, the prophetic activity of the church ceased, but it did mean that no new revelation was given. The task of the church to preach and teach, right? in other words, to explain the written words of the New Testament's apostles and prophets. All right, so before we go in our notes to um, the last couple, we're really going to kind of get into this prophetic aspect and the implications for the church. Any, any questions or comments so far? Because I know I have a tendency to hit the gas and then, you know, not look in the rearview mirror. So how are we tracking? Are we tracking? All right. All right, sounds good. Well, let's keep going then. So, uh, so next on our notes, right? So we see Joel's prophecy, the day of Pentecost, its implications for uh, the history of redemption, right? Moving forward to that goal. Now we think of word and worship. Right, so building, building on that we have this revelation right, from the apostles handed down to us, how does this relate to worship? So the prophetic ministry of the church is carried out in a number of ways. And the corporate church fulfills a prophetic ministry, and again, not, not the office of a prophet, but a prophetic ministry by a commitment to the truth of God's word and the faithful proclamation of the gospel. Right? The church has a responsibility to proclaim Christ's message. Right? And in this way, the church calls people to repent of their sin and to believe in Jesus. And corporate worship, the gathering of God's people, the gathering of the church, especially even in light um, of singing, is a way for God's people to teach and admonish her, ad, admonish one another by declaring praise to God for who He is and what He has done. So we see there's this um, word tied in with proclamation and singing and edification within the church, right? We think of that in this corporate setting. But next on your notes, if you'll flip over, we see, and now... Actually, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mix this up real quick. I'm going to go to the end. So, Vern Poitras has this really, really helpful explanation or, or, or spectrum with how to think about um, how to think about these offices, right? When we think of prophet, priest, and king, and how we can think about them as they relate to Christ, how they relate to the apostles, how they relate to office holders of the church today, like pastors, um, and then how it relates to God's people, individual believers in general, right? And so, uh, and, and this is going to be helpful as we, we start to go through the prophetic role of elders and then, and then individual believers. So, if you will, you think of two major spectrums, right? You have one major, one major part is divine authority, right? Or divine commissioning. And we see this with Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And then secondly, we see it with the apostles, right? Those whom Christ selected to represent him. 
And so those carry divine authority, and they fulfill those offices, even though there's a distinction, right? Because the apostles, right, we have to make nuances between them and Christ, right? Even though um, they represent him, right? And so there's, 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 a, there's a little bit um, of, of change there. But then you have this second part, so you have divine authority, and then you have biblical authority, and that's where you have office holders of the church, right, which is different from apostles, so we need to make distinctions there. And then lastly, you have individual believers, right? And you make, this, you make, you make that distinction between individual believers and their implications, um, and then office holders, apostles, and then Christ himself. So uh, I, I actually I don't remember the name of the article, but it was, it's, it's, it's just a helpful paradigm so that way we don't start to conflate or uh, have the wrong kind of overlap, like individual believers, and they're really fulfilling a role like an apostle. Like, no, that's not good. That's not healthy, right? Like, we need to make those. And so we want to keep those clean. Um, and so I, I, I do. I, th I think that is, that is helpful. So let's now talk about, under biblical authority, number three on your notes, the prophetic role of elders. And again, it's just helpful to make sure we distinguish. The, a, the prophetic aspect of the office of elder is different than a prophet, right? And, I, and as long as we make that nuance, I, I think that will help us. Because according to Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, God provides the church with gifts. And those gifts are people, leaders, who are given that prophetic role of teaching and proclaiming for the church's sake. Right? And Andrew had a really helpful explanation on that. If you want more, go listen to that sermon on Ephesians 4. Very helpful. So elders are charged to be faithful to the word of God and are to be given to the ministry of prayer, Acts chapter 6, and are to pass on the word to others who will be faithful to it. We see that in Acts 20 when Paul is talking to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20 verses 28 to 30 and 2 Timothy 2, 2 where he tells um, Timothy, that you need to find faithful men who will pass on the faithful word to others. And God promises to accomplish his purposes and grow the church through the preaching of the word. Right? We think of Acts 2.41. That um, those who receive the word, the word specifically, when Peter was preaching and they were added to the church. Or, or as Luke says in, in Acts 12.24, that the word of God increase and multiply, right? That it was so tied to people coming to know the Lord that he talks about it as though the word of God is growing or increasing. And we see the same in Acts 19.20. And so this prophetic aspect means that the word will establish God's people in the truth and correct errors of thought and behavior, right? 2 Timothy 3. And that the elders must commit to regularly pray for the people of God and to faithfully preach and teach the word. And this includes a commitment to studying the word of God, right? 2 Timothy 2.15, that they must rightly handle the word of truth. This means that they must be faithful to proclaim the word, right? We see that with expositing the word, explaining it, 2 Timothy 4, that they must preach the word in season and out of season. And they must faithfully apply the word of God to the lives of his people to strengthen and build them up 
in their faith so that we will be one mature man in Christ. So on your notes, so we see the prophetic role of elders. And now I just want to do a, a little like subcategory of that, right? We think of what are the implications for preaching? What should we expect when we think about preaching and this prophetic aspect? And there's, and there's, and there's many or multiple implications, but I do just want to bring out one or two. The importance of the prophetic ministry of the word cannot be overestimated because it is through the word that God accomplishes his purposes. Right? We see that in Isaiah 55, right, verse 10, 11, that his word will not return void. Right? Our job is not to reinvent it. Right? Our job is to be faithful. Faithful. The purposes include salvation and building up God's people in the truth protecting the church from false teaching and hardening the hearts of people who reject the word of God, right? We see that in Isaiah 6 and Mark 4, like we saw in the case of the Pharisees. The church fails in her mission whenever she neglects portions of God's word, adjusts the message of the word to make it more acceptable to the culture or teaches what is contrary to the word. And I think that's helpful when we talk about faithfulness in the Word. But there's also, I think, other implications. And I appreciated Belcher bringing this out. Unfortunately, a truncated view of Christ and His work in preaching can be seen with only bringing out Christ's work as priest in His sacrificial death for us in sermons. Whereas it can be more helpful and more appropriate and more full-orbed, more complete for us, to view salvation, sanctification, and glorification in light of Christ's work as prophet, priest, and king. Right? We think about that salvation getting right with God, sanctification actually becoming more holy, Christ changing us, and glorification. Right? Resurrected like Christ in, um, in that fullness. No more sin. Confirmed state of blessedness. And Additionally, when we use this paradigm of prophet, priest, and king, and we bring it out in our preaching, it will help us to more faithfully and more organically tie how the Old Testament connects and fits with the New Testament and its fulfillment in Christ, right? Because we think about that connection. Christ means the anointed one. And we think about who were the anointed ones in the Old Testament, right? And so we see this shadow and type and fulfillment and anti-type in Christ. So, on your notes, we've seen the prophetic role of elders, some implications for preaching, and now, fifthly, the prophetic role for individual believers, right? So now this is going to be like the most broad category, right? When we think of like these prophetic implications. So the Heidelberg Catechism connects the briefly, the prophetic, priestly, and kingly roles to the believer's life through how Christ fulfills those roles. Question 31 reads, Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? And the answer is given in terms of how he is prophet, priest, and king. 
Jesus is described as our chief prophet and teacher who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance. Then question 32 asks, but why are you called a Christian? And the answer, because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing, I am anointed to confess his name. Now I want you, so one of the texts that they reference in the Heidelberg Catechism, and I want us to read this together, is 1 John 2, 27. So turn with me. Because I, I, this is really interesting, right? Not only the overlap of, of, of anointed language with the Holy Spirit, right, that we see with Christ, and now with individual believers, but then John uses it to help the believers understand and situate themselves with the false teachers that he's dealing with in the epistle of 1 John. So 1 John 2 and in verse 27. Can I have a volunteer read uh, verse 27? 1 John 2, 27. Interesting. So, very, very interesting. The anointing of the Holy Spirit mentioned in 1 John 2.27 is in the context of dealing with false teachers who deny that Jesus is the Christ. This anointing refers to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in bringing people to an understanding of the gospel and the person of Christ. But there's, there's implications to this. Not only does the Spirit regenerate and indwell believers, but he also continues his ministry of illuminating their minds to the truth of God's word. Notice, this anointing is a remedy against false teaching because the believers that John is writing to are not inferior to the false teachers. They also have the Spirit who teaches them. Now, sometimes people can take this too far, and they're like, I don't need a pastor in my life. You know, I have the same anointing you do, right? And they kind of downplay the offices that Christ has given for his church and for the church's good. But we don't want to go too far on the other side where we forget about the importance and the power of the anointing of the Holy Spirit to keep us faithful and true to God, even in light of false teaching in the church. Right? So what he's doing is John is invalidating the authority of the false teachers. And he also needs to encourage the believers to continue under these difficult circumstances following what they know to be true. And so I think that's, that's helpful because it brings out this prophetic aspect that we also share in this anointing and then its implications for us to know the word, rightly handle the word in the local church and be accountable and responsible for it. But this prophetic role of believers also consists, as we said, in handling the word of God and its practical use in our daily lives. Every believer has a prophetic role, right? And there are many ways to think of this role, right? A, a believer must be committed to study and understand the word of God to fight against sin in his or her own life, right? We must daily meditate upon the Word, right? We think of Psalm 1. 
Um, uh, and then not only that, but to also to minister to others, right? And to speak the truth in love, like Ephesians 4.15 says. We have that um, uh, uh, believer on believer aspect where we must be speaking the truth in love to one another. A father must understand the scripture to lead his family in the study and use of God's word. And a mother must be able to apply the word of God to her children daily. In this way, the Bible becomes foundational to everything a believer does in life. And it's fascinating. Ben Glad, he, he also makes this point, as we, so we basically have been following mo- mostly from Belcher, but, but Ben Glad makes this point, that in Ephesians 3.10, Paul, when he's talking about the mystery of Christ and the church, he says that it is through the church that God makes known his manifold wisdom to the demonic rulers and authority, right? And, and, there, and there's this prophetic aspect right? But it's, it's not sometimes as we think to take that, right? Because we think of that with the church in action, the church in evangelism, the church in preaching, the church, right? And just f- fulfill that blank. But, but Peter O'Brien helpfully says that it is not by evangelism or social action or any other additional activity by God's people. Instead, through the church signifies that the the very existence of this new multiracial community, Jew and Gentile together, as one, equal standing in Christ. It is in this unity, in one body, that it is the manifestation of God's rich, diverse wisdom. So there's this prophetic aspect not only in what we do or in studying or in sharing, right? Embodying and proclaiming the truth, but simply by being the church, by being members of the church. And as we gather together, right? And live life with one another, it proclaims God's manifold wisdom. So we see that additional prophetic aspect. And so... Any questions so far? I know uh, that, that, that's actually going to bring us to the end. So any questions or was there anything that like stuck out to you? Like, wow, okay, that's really interesting or that's a really helpful perspective. And we'll just go ahead and open it up. That last point you made about the um, Ephesians 3. Um, summarize that again for me. The, the, I'm thinking of something, but I don't know if the comment is relevant. But I want to yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. So in Ephesians 3.10. The rulers and authorities and the church. Correct, yeah. So when it says um, uh, in verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone that is in the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So um, God is the one who's making it known and the instrument he's using is the church but it's not the church in action. It's the church simply that it exists as a multiracial group, uh, not divided between Jew or Gentile, but together in one body. And that is what God is using to proclaim and show his manifold wisdom and proclaiming it to the... Yeah, yeah no, that, that's good. That, that's helpful. That made me think about the, the, the separation that was 
caused one between Adam and Eve in the garden, and then um, the first man and God and their yes. sin and Satan's temptation, um, and then even just um, just throughout history, the, the separation that sin has caused. Uh, think about even Babel, where there's this people uh, together building a tower, and then there's a disbursement, which is also a curse and blessing, but. Now, in the church, there's this reversal of those things, that separation where you have these people being brought back together as in, in the one new man. Yes. So there is, even in that, this display of God's power and the reversal of the curse and the fall and sort of the residue from that is all being reversed in Christ. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. No, that's awesome. And I really, that, no, it's really helpful the way you just captured that. I wish I would have had those notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Arnie. Okay. Uh, it's uh, what you said. This, this topic kind of highlights also what's going on in the world. Meaning, if, if that is God's plan, the prophetic aspect, well, or His the revelation of His plan through the church, you know, the the anointing of the believers to pass it on, is that you can see the the. The cosmic battle, mm -hmm. the silencing of the church, mm -hmm. you know, the marginalization yes. of the Christian worldview, the cancellation of the worldview. Yeah. You just see this battle. Yes. It's not so much as, you know, uh, differences of people, but they are against God and they're mm -hmm. some, uh, trying to subdue yes. that worldview or God's uh, reign, Christ's reign. Both in the redemptive and the eschatological yes. aspect of it. Yes. Yeah, no, excellent point. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, right? You're like, you read the word and then you just look outside and you're like, yeah. This just, just like registers even more. You're like, man, the word of God is so true. Yeah, when you see this. Yeah. Anthony, you're going to say something. Yeah, uh, when we first came in, when we were talking about the, um, the foundation being built and the church being built upon the foundation, yes. Uh, just. Just like I don't know, I just visualized it, and it was like you know, Christ is the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone mm -hmm. of that foundation, which was laid, and then the church is built upon it. Yes, and it's like you know, it's the spiritual church. Yes, that you know, we can't physically see necessarily that complete yes. building up of that temple. Yes, and it's glorious, and it just keeps building. And, yes, and I, I, I was thinking about. Um, when David, he wanted to build the temple, and God said, no, your son is going to build it. Mm. But he thought Solomon, but it was pointing towards yes. Jesus. And I just thought of all that, and was like, I was like, wow. That was a yes, no, that's, that's an excellent point, right? And, um, uh, and how G this, this is Jesus building his temple. It's yeah. the church, the and church. it's God's holy people being built up where the spirit indwells based on the on the foundation of the apostles with Christ himself. Yeah, that's an excellent point. It's so beautiful. And then in Ephesians Three, as, as we were talking about, like it's that spiritual church being built up. It's being seen by the heavenly yes. and authorities. It's not, you know, it's not just the physical, but it's the heavenly authorities. Yes, yes, that cosmic the picture. Cos yeah. yeah, it's so funny, right? Because sometimes living in America, we take the cosmic out of it, right? We almost become like anti-supernatural, or we're scared to talk about like Satan or angels, you know. Whereas, you know, in other countries, right, there's like maybe an overemphasis, you know. Um, so, yeah, just, yeah, super interesting. Yeah, good point. All right, well, let's go ahead and um, thank the Lord for our time, and let's go ahead and close out. Father, we um, worship you. Lord Jesus, mediator, 
we worship you. And Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, we worship you. Thank you for our time. Encourage and knit our hearts not only to one another, but to you in your worship and praise. Stir us up and lead us as we now go to enter corporate worship together for our good and your glory. Amen.